We're going to be in Esther chapter 8. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can open that up. You know, a few weeks back I mentioned a Christmas story and how much I like this movie. And since Christmas is only 44 days away, and yes, that includes today, 44 days away, I thought I would just go there again. According to Entertainment Weekly, A Christmas Story is the number two watched movie uh, during the Christmas season. Behind only It's a Wonderful Life. And as a side note, just for all of you Christmas lovers out there, I have never seen It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, (gasps) I'm going to do my absolute best to watch that uh, before Sunday. So you can ask me on Sunday if I've seen it already. But I'm going to do my best to watch it. Uh, Number five is actually my favorite Christmas movie. Go figure, The Grinch. So, um, But back, back to Ralphie. There is a moment in a Christmas story, it's Christmas morning, the boys wake up, they go downstairs and very violently start ripping open, opening gifts and trying to get, Ralphie is seeking for that one gift that he wanted, the Red uh, Ryder BB gun. And so there's a picture, I took a picture, I had to watch the movie and take a snapshot on my computer screen uh, and it's this. I want you to look at the disappointment in Ralphie's face. He doesn't think he's gotten the BB gun. And as a spoiler uh, alert for you, if you've never seen it, he ends up getting it. And you can watch the uh, excitement roll in. But at this moment, he doesn't believe he's getting this gift. He's very discouraged and totally disappointed in this moment that he doesn't feel like he got everything that he wanted. This is exactly how I think Esther must have felt in chapter 8. Okay, As we look at chapter 8, as we start unwrapping chapter 8, you're going to see a major disappointment in how Esther is feeling. Because even though she's being honored, even though we're going to see that she's going to be rewarded, it's not going to be what she desired the most. Which leads us to our big idea Our big idea of the passage um, tonight is when God meets our individual needs, he still intends that we keep working for the needs of others. So chapter 8, let's look at Esther and Mordecai's reward. Starting in verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king... And For Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off the signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So Esther is going to be rewarded with all of Haman's stuff. Mordecai is going to be given the signet ring that Haman had. So we see that these two are going to be richly rewarded for unraveling the... the Haman's plot to kill the queen, to kill her people. And she's going to be a little disappointed in what she receives. So what did she want? Let's check it out. Uh, Because Esther pleads for her true desire. Verses 3 through 6. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. 
And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if this thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people, or how I can bear the destruction of my kindred? So Esther is safe, Mordecai is safe, but Esther did not want to be saved alone. That was not her plan. That is not her desire of what she wanted. Haman had been executed, and because of his execution, that had to have been a weight that was taken off of her, a weight that was taken off of Mordecai. All you would think that would, all would be great. I've given you all of this stuff. I've given you all of these riches. Haman was number two uh, in command. He had a lot of riches. She gets it all. Mordecai gets the signet ring. And so we're going to see that she's not pleased with these gifts. And her passion is going to be on full display. She was seeking salvation not just for herself and not just for Mordecai. She was seeking salvation for her people. And so... She's going to go to the king again. And I want you to notice her language. Don't miss this. She fell at his feet. She wept before him. She pleaded with him. If it pleases the king, if I have found favor in your sight, if this seems right to you. She even throws in a new one. If, it, if I am pleasing in your eyes, let these things be done. You know, I think sometimes when we... Uh, plead on behalf of something. And when we plead to God for something, I know there was a time in my life when uh, I sought an answer to a prayer that ultimately that answer was no. But sometimes I think when we don't hear God answering our prayer and we continue to go to Him, we're tempted to stop praying. And let me just encourage you that if that's the case, keep Praying. God does hear your prayers. God is listening and he wants to answer those prayers according to his will and according to his good purpose. But don't miss Esther's heart as she pleads to the king on her behalf of her people. She is absolutely 100% not ashamed to beg for her people. Death had passed over her. Death had passed over Mordecai. But we're going to see that she's not pleased with that. She wants to have her people saved. Which leads to King Ahasuerus' reply. Let's look at his reply, starting in verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. They have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please... Uh, in regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and to seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in, the, written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's reply is going, he's going to take the easy way out here. okay? Because the king was content. The king did not want any more uh, life issues to happen. He kind of dodged a bullet, so to speak, when he had to deal with Haman. He could have lost a lot of credit. He could have lost faith, uh, face with his people. Um, he could have come down where, you know, and when he has Haman hanged on the gallows, he says his wrath is satisfied. So he's like, listen, I've given you his house. I've given you his money. 
I killed the very man that was your enemy. Isn't this enough? Here's the deal. He was content. This kind of shows me that he lacked compassion in this moment. Yet we have to remember, this is a Persian king who was very ruthless in his time uh, in making his kingdom great, making his name great. So he lacks compassion. He was content with what he gave them. And Esther is going to beg him to do what is right. The king knows that an edict that has been signed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. It cannot be turned around. So he says, okay, why don't you create a new law? Why don't you create a new edict to repeal what has taken place, uh, to uh, be on top of what has already transpired? So let's look at Mordecai's plan in this, starting in verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, in the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps, to the governors, to the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, to each people its own language, also to the Jews in their own script and their own language, and he wrote in the name of King Hosrus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding with swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed forces of any people or provinces that might attack them children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day. Throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. The copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every provinces, being publicly displayed to all the peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that they were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So since the edict could not be changed, they had to just write a new one. They had to just add on top of what was already done. So there was a decree that went out that said, on this day, you could wipe out the Jewish people, you could take their plunder on this day, you were allowed to do that. And so now we're going to see Mordecai come up with an edict that allows God's people to defend themselves, to protect themselves from their enemies. So I don't want you to miss this. The Jews throughout this empire, all throughout King Ahasuerus' empire, would not have known that Haman had been executed. They would not have known that he had died. They would still be under under the impression that they were under a death sentence, They were under the impression that the clock is ticking. Their time is coming to an end. They would would have been at a completely defeated position. Emotionally, spiritually, all these things. They would have been like, this is it. We just have to sit here and take it. We can't do anything about it. Smith notes this. He says, for all practical purposes, the effect was... That the new decree gave, to the, gave the Jews legal protection to fight back, stripping any attackers of a favored legal position. 
Nevertheless, it did not remove the threat against the Jewish people. So their outcome was still uncertain. This is not something that automatically said that they would not be killed. It just gave them the right to defend themselves. And so like Haman, Mordecai writes an edict. He writes it in every language to all the peoples throughout all the empire, 127 provinces. He made sure that everyone would know about this. And so he's going to send out the horses, the ones that were bred for the king in the king's service, the faster horses. This was modern-day Persian version of Amazon two-day shipping. So they got everything. They got the word out. You can defend yourself. And let's see how the people will respond to this news. God's people celebrate. Verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and with robe and a robe in fine linen and purple and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and every city wherever the king's command and his edict reached there was gladness and joy among the Jews a feast and a holiday And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves to be Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. I want you to remember back in Esther chapter 4, when the first edict signed by Haman was given to the people. They were clothed in sackcloth. They had put on ashes. They were mourning. There was weeping all throughout the city. Even those who were not Jewish were totally confused. And then Haman and the king go out for a drink. Remember that scene and think about the scene now in chapter 8. You see a different picture. They're celebrating. They're throwing a feast. They're celebrating as if it was a holiday. This really, this passage really made me think of Isaiah 61. To where it says in verse 3, To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, The oil of gladness instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. Even in Psalm 30. Here's another passage. This is good. You have turned me from mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. You have clothed me with gladness. That the glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So this is great news for God's people. And it spreads throughout the entire kingdom. And their response is celebratory. They are filled with gladness. They are filled with joy. It does not specifically say that all of their celebration was aimed at God. Because God himself is not mentioned in this book. But we can only imagine that they are praising Yahweh for the gift that they had been given in this moment. And like it says in verse 17. Many from the people of the country called themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. I don't want to get too far into this because we're going to talk about this next week. We're going to go back to Joshua quite a bit and, and hit on that. But think about that for a minute. Your enemies, the people who had permission to kill you, a lot of them are going, yeah, I'm a Jew. I'm, if this edict has been written and they have a chance to defend themselves and we know what just happened, man, I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm going to... The fear of God had come upon these people. And they wanted nothing to do with the Jews' God or with the Jews in this moment. And so, 
whether that was in reverence or whether that was in fear. Whether they had started to follow Yahweh or not, it doesn't say. However, what it does say is the fear had fallen on them. And many of them decided to recognize, to align themselves with the Jews. So things are looking up for Esther and Mordecai. And hope has finally come to God's people. And they, how would they respond to this? How will it end up going? That's what we're going to talk about next week. So you'll have to come next week and figure all that out. So what do I want to tell you about chapter 8? In lieu of what we just read, here's a few takeaways. Number one, we must remember our salvation. While Esther and Mordecai had found favor with God, they had been rewarded by the king after Haman's plot was revealed, they were absolutely not satisfied with what they had, with their own safety for the salvation of their own life. I want you to think about your salvation for a moment. We're on this side of the cross. We know about what Jesus has done. Hopefully, if you're sitting in here, you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want you to think about what you do with that salvation and that hope. Do you have a genuine concern for lost people? Or are you only concerned with your own salvation? Or are you concerned with only the salvation of maybe your friends and family? Everyone else, it's not a big deal. Do we have a genuine concern for lost people? Landon Dowden says it like this. We should never be so comfortable with our own salvation that we have no compassion for those without it. I want you to listen to Paul's heart in Romans 9. He says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul's saying, I would give it up my salvation I would give up knowing Christ if only all of my brothers could know. Wow. That is powerful. He would give up eternity in heaven and spend eternity separated from God in hell if his buddies could know Jesus. If his kinsmen could know Jesus. Even some of those kinsmen that would kill him if they had the chance. I would give it up if they could know Jesus. Paul would go on to tell the believers in Philippi in Philippians chapter 3. I have often told you and now I say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he adds their end is destruction. Paul wept for lost people. Paul went to the Father on behalf of lost people. And my question is do we? And I'm putting myself in that. So I'm going to tell you, sometimes I get very comfortable in my own salvation and I don't look outside the box enough. So I just want to challenge us with that. There was a man by the name of Adoniram Judson. And soon after becoming a Christian, he felt the burden to go uh, to the nations with the gospel. He wanted to be a foreign missionary. However, early in the 1800s, there was no mission-sending organization in his um, particular domination, uh, denomination. So he wrote an article, and the title of the article was The Salvation of the Heathen. And in this article, he would share his frustrations with Christians in the 1800s 
with how they could look at a dying world around them and have no compassion for lost people. He said this, How do Christians discharge this trust committed to them? They let three-fourths of the world sleep the sleep of death, ignorant of the simple truth that a Savior died for them. Content, if they can be useful in a little circle of their acquaintances, they quietly sit and see whole nations perish for lack of knowledge. God would go on to use Judson um, to start a mission organization. He would be one of the very first missionaries to be sent from that organization. But hear his heart for lost people. Hear his desire for lost people to come to know Jesus. My question is, do we ache? Do we cry out? Do we feel a burden for lost people around us? Or only are we only concerned with our own salvation? If you are a Christian, okay, if you're a Christian, you know Jesus, we have to open our mouths and we have to tell people about Jesus. We have to stop keeping it to ourselves. We have a gift. We have hope. And we would be the most selfish people in the world if we did not tell people, if we kept it to ourselves and we didn't tell a world who was lost and, and going to hell. So number two, number one, we must remember our salvation. Number two, we have to make a list and we have to pray. I would ask you to make a list of lost people. It could be a waitress at your favorite restaurant. It could be someone across the street. It could be someone that you work with. We have to plead for lost people to God. We have to fall on our knees, petition the Father on their behalf. We also have to pray for people to be sent to them that would share the gospel. Just because you're praying for that person, maybe someone else could be the person that brings them to Christ. Pray for people to be sent. The Bible tells us the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We need to pray for people to be sent. As I say that, yes, you are being sent. If you are a Christian, you are being sent. You are called to go and to make disciples. You're not off the hook. You can't just pray and be okay. You are called to tell people about Jesus, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And so in that, we need to pray for growth to take place. So that people who know Jesus can grow in Christ. And in return, guess what? They are sent. They get to tell people about Jesus. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. So this edict sent out by Mordecai to inform the Jews that the king had granted them the opportunity to defend themselves when their time came uh, for this edict to take place. So they were able to defend themselves. And if, let me just say this, if the Jews would celebrate and throw feasts over the opportunity that they could fight, for the opportunity that they could just fight for victory, how much more should we celebrate because our battle's already been won? We don't even have to fight it. Jesus has already won the battle for us. How much more should we celebrate in that fact? Our hope is certain. And we do not fight from a defeated position. We know the outcome. And I pray that because we know the outcome, it changes the way that we live. I will be the first to admit that I have been lazy in many times in my life of not doing these things. And I just want to encourage us as a church to be intentional, make a list, and pray. Number three, we should have intentional conversations. 
This is the hard part. We are so glued to technology and our phones, and we think that we are more connected with the world than we ever have been. But I would argue that our culture has never been more disconnected or unengaged than they ever have been, than we are right now. We need to have face-to-face, intentional conversations. We need to have that over dinner. We need to invite lost people to our homes to have dinner with them, to be able to open up the door to share the gospel. We need to have those types of difficult conversations with people to tell them the truth about who Jesus is. People need to hear it. And I just pray that the Lord would open our eyes to see people around us that need Jesus. And that not only does he open our eyes, he would help us to open our mouth. And I'm not talking texting or emailing. I'm talking face-to-face. Have a conversation with someone. And if you want that type of evangelistic heart, uh, number four, we have to read our Bible. We must read our Bible. The heart of the book of Esther is a rescue mission story by God. He is coming to rescue his people. He gets to use Esther and Mordecai along the way. And we're going to see him use them even more in chapters 9 and 10. But God is in a rescue mission to save his people. And so I heard a great quote. And I may mess this up, but it goes something like this. It says, the Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to a person who isn't. And that's true. If you want the heart of God, if you want the heart of Jesus... Guess what? You have to open up your book and you have to find out who Jesus is and who God is and follow after them. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. You know, he did not come to be served, but he came to serve. And that should be our heart as well. We should do our best um, to spend time in God's word so that we can become more like Christ so that we in return would want to seek and save the lost as well. I thought about a song this week as I was preparing. This is a song that we sang a lot when I was in youth group. It's called Take My Life and Let It Be. Consecrated Lord for the end. And we used to sing this a ton in youth group. And it was one of those really slow songs and it was emotional and everybody started crying. They'd have it at the invitation time. It was great. Do you all know what song I'm talking about? We should play it for you sometime. But I'm going to tell you how this song came to be written. Okay, there was a lady by the name of Frances Havergal. Okay, and she took a trip to visit a family, a family of 10. And she could not wait to go visit this family because she had heard that some people in this family did not know Jesus. She knew a few of them did. But she made it her mission to, as she went to go visit this family on an extended stay to share Jesus with all of them. And this was her prayer. Her prayer was, Lord, give me the whole house. Not half, not eight out of ten. I want the whole house. And that was her prayer. It was very simple. Lord, give me the whole house. By the final night of her stay, eight out of ten had accepted Jesus. And she sat in a room with the last two young ladies that had not received Christ yet. And she's talking to them. She's having these long conversations with them and talking to them about who Jesus is and who they are. And through many conversations, through many tears, 
uh, in the middle of the night, these two young ladies give their lives to Jesus and they accept uh, Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, Frances was so overjoyed and so filled with joy that she went back to her room and she could not sleep. And in her praise to God, she writes this song. And here are the words to the song. It says this. And it's on your paper, I believe. It says, Take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, and I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take my life, and I will be ever only all for thee. In all that God has given me and all that God has given you, I pray that we lay all of it at his feet and pray that God would use us to further his kingdom here on earth. And I know we get so bogged down with day-to-day issues and with you know crazy diseases across our land and elections and everything else, but let us not forget that we are here for the reason of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dying world around us. So let's pray.